The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode of Lawfare No Bull for May 8th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Lawfare No Bull, a Lawfare podcast that features primary source audio from the world of national security law and policy. Lawfare No Bull runs audio from sources, speeches, congressional hearings, court proceedings, think tank events, and other events we think are of interest to Lawfare readers and listeners. Today's episode features audio from the 2022 Verify Conference, hosted by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Aspen Institute. In the episode, journalist Aruna Viswanatha sat down with Matt Olson, the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Justice Department, to discuss a report published earlier that day from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The report revealed that for the first time, the FBI conducted approximately 3.4 million warrantless searches of Americans' personal data in 2021. This is Lawfare Noble. For those of you who haven't seen it yet, um, the Director of National Intelligence just put out um, an annual report that for the first time disclosed the number of times the FBI in the past year has queried the um, 702 holdings for U.S. person information. And um, that number is pretty large, uh, 3.4 million. And they did also disclose that it was 2 million more than the year before. Um, so I do want to ask you about sort of why that number is so large and what the increase is all about. But in the spirit of the conference, maybe we'll just start first with a very basic question. What exactly is that number a calculation of? Sure. And it is great to actually to be here to talk about this today. I mean, as you said, Aruna, just, I don't know, an hour or so ago, the report from the Director of National Intelligence, it's an annual uh, statistical transparency report, was, was released publicly uh, and I know there's already been some news reports about it. Um, and uh, it is, you know, I would step back a little bit. It is part of an effort. I think this is the ninth annual report uh, that's part of an effort in general by the DNI and the, and the FBI and the intelligence community to provide more transparency, pr- provide more statistics and information about how our intelligence authorities are used. So... I definitely will answer the question about the queries, but it, I think it might be useful. I don't know. I mean, this is a highly informed group, but not everybody, you know, tracks what Section 702 is and FISA. So I may just, if I may, sure, step yes. back a little bit before talking about the number of, of searches of the database to talk about the tools themselves. Uh, you know, FISA, this one, this most folks know, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, dates back to 1978, authorizes... Uh, a court, a special court to issue uh, essentially warrants based on probable cause to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, in 2008, uh, the Congress uh, enacted this significant reform to, to FISA, which had existed you know, pretty much unchanged for all those years. In 2008, it enacted Section 702, uh, which is partly the subject of today's report. And Section 702 of FISA is really a, it was a landmark change in the way FISA worked because what it did was it authorized the government to acquire foreign intelligence information about non-U.S. persons who were outside the United States and to do so without getting individual 
probable cause orders from the FISA court. So the FISA court's still involved in programmatic oversight, as well as Congress, as is Congress, of Section 702. But since the targets of the collection, non-U.S. persons overseas, uh, don't have Fourth Amendment rights like U.S. persons do, uh, th this is an authorized way to acquire foreign intelligence, targeting those outside the U.S. who aren't U.S. persons. And it's, you know, it's proven to be, just from my vantage point, extraordinarily valuable. I mean, I, I sit at the Department of Justice now, and I was at the Department of Justice before, but I also have served as the NSA general counsel and as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And I've seen from a number, number of different angles how valuable this collection has been. Um, so that's 702 in, in very, very short summary. But uh, what it also authorizes is the ability of course, once you have collected this information, uh, to search uh, it for clues, basically. So the FBI is authorized to, to look in the Section 702 data that it's collected, again, targeting people outside the United States, uh, for information you know, to fulfill its domestic national security mission. So they will, for example, if there's somebody they've identified who's an ISIS operative um, who maybe has connections inside the United States, uh, they might put an email address into the Section 702 database, uh, email address or a phone number or a name or partial name of somebody who might be a U.S. person, for example, into that database to see, is there a link between the ISIS operative and this U.S. person? Similarly, if it's a, uh, you know, an, an espionage case, and we know, obviously, that foreign intelligence uh, services recruit inside the United States, so they might have information about a foreign intelligence service targeting people in the United States to... Uh, to recruit them as agents, and so they'll put information into this database to search for those linkages. And then, you know, another, I think, more uh, relevant example in terms of our conference and the issues we've been talking about is cyber and cybersecurity. Uh, we know that the FBI is authorized to uh, search the 702 database, for example, if there's information about a uh, foreign cyber threat, that it may have collected information about that through 702 collection, you know, targeting... Uh, a Chinese cyber actor or a Russian cyber actor, then to look to see how that threat has manifested inside the United States. Who are the victims? Where, where has that threat gone? Uh, the FBI will search the Section 702 databases as well as other databases. And, of course, NSA and CIA and the rest of the intelligence community is all part of this effort as well. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to give a little bit of background in response to your question about how, that's kind of how it works, you know, like looking for clues in the Section 702 data. Uh, whether it's terrorism, cybersecurity, or cyber, or, or espionage. So, now, the report today uh, revealed uh, that this calendar year, or part of the most, I guess not totally a calendar year, but um, to basically 2021, uh, the 12-month period, the FBI searched the database, uh, the Section 702 database, about 3.4 million times. And that's the first time, by the way, that the FBI has ever disclosed um, the number of searches. It, it's been technically not possible for them to do that in the past. Right. This is a number that lawmakers have sought for a long time. Why, what changed now that allowed them to calculate this? My understanding is just technical and, and systems upgrades, basically, that allowed them to, 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 to provide a number. But I will say that the number is not precise. It's largely an estimate, and I'll kind of, kind of explain yeah. why that is. But the, the number, at, at, you know, 3.4 million... Uh, is a significant jump over the year before, because we also disclosed the prior year. It's about 2 million more than the, the last year. And, and most, almost all of that, 1.9 million of those queries, uh, had to do with a single Russian cyber threat, uh, where the FBI had a pool of information uh, about possible victims, and they searched the database with that information uh, 1.9 million times, looking for information to understand who was being victimized, what systems, what networks uh, were being targeted by that threat. And the reason it's... It, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, I was just going to ask, can you describe for us... That sounds like a very large number, 1.9 yeah. million potential American victims of a cyber threat. Can you give us any sense of how many were actually found to be victims? So I can't, and that's part of the problem. So the number is a very rough number, and one of the reasons is because in terms of its compliance responsibilities, the way the FBI counts those searches is if... For example, just, you know, hypothetically, if 100, uh, in a bulk search, because they'll do bulk searches for, with information, and if there are 100 uh, 
identifiers that they search the database with, if one of those is reasonably likely to reveal U.S. person information, they will count all 100 as U.S. person searches. So it's not precise. It's not ideal, in fact, because it might, I, it, I think it clearly overstates the total number. Um, and I can't tell you exactly how many, um, you know, victims there were. Um, I can tell you that the Department of Justice and the National Security Division, where I am, conducts oversight of this and looked at the number of queries and looked at these queries in particular and found them to be in full compliance with the FISA court orders that uh, set the rules uh, under which the FBI can conduct these searches. Can you tell us if this was a Russian cyber threat that is already publicly known or it's some new event that we have never heard of previously? I can't. <laughs> so, unfortunately, I can't. Um, uh, no. So, it is, you know, it is the case that it is... Uh, as you can imagine, right, it's a very valuable way for the FBI, as I sort of described, to try to identify the contours of a threat, again, whether it's cyber or some other type of threat. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been issues and concerns about the FBI queries. I mean, I think it's important to be, you know, in talking about this, to, to say, you know, this is an area of concern for the privacy and civil liberties groups with uh, members of Congress, that the FBI has the ability to uh, use U.S. person identifying information to search a database that is collecting information that's targeting people outside the United States. Uh, now, it's lawfully collected, and it's sitting in FBI holdings, but there are a lot of restrictions about how the FBI can do it, the purposes for which it can search. Um, there are system limitations. They have to limit the, the number, the bulk queries to 100 at a time. They have to... They have to actually opt in to conduct a search, not just automatically do it. So, um, but this is an ongoing area that will be part of the broader debate, if I could talk about that for a moment, about FISA. Sure, yeah. I mean, as a segue, maybe I'll just read, right after the report came out, Senator Wyden put out a statement that I'll just read and ask you to comment on. Um, for anyone outside the U.S. government, the astronomical number of FBI searches of Americans' communications is either highly alarming or entirely meaningless. Uh, somewhere in that overcounting are real numbers of FBI searches for content and non-content, um, and the these are numbers that Congress and the American people need to see before 702 is reauthorized. So do you expect um, the administration to try to declassify more of this information in order to make the case for that reauthorization next year? So that's a really good question, Aruna. I mean, I, in terms of the declassification of this information, I, there's... I fully expect there to be more information about Section 702, how it's used, particular cases that will that have been classified that will be de be declassified in this very important debate that is literally starting, you know, now um, more than a year and a half from when Section 702 expires, which is at the end of next year. Um, I can tell you that our team at the National Security Division, folks in the Director of National Intelligence and around the intelligence community are very focused on uh, working with Congress and making the case that it's, uh, you know, a critical tool uh, that, you know, I believe has proven uh, to strike uh, uh, an appropriate balance between giving the intelligence community the need to be able to move quickly uh, with appropriate oversight uh, uh, to conduct, uh, to acquire foreign intelligence, while also giving you know, the, the FISA court and Congress and executive branch oversight bodies, the ability to make sure that it's done lawfully. Is that sort of declassification process going on right now? Should we expect to see more of these sort of case studies released in the... Yeah, I mean, I will say that we are talking now about how we are going to be able to make the case on Section 702 and what we can, what we can do in terms of transparency uh, and declassification of, of otherwise classified information to really make this case, whether it's Senator Wyden, who is one of the most, I've talked to him a number of times uh, about uh, intelligence collection. He's one of the most informed and thoughtful members of Congress on this. He's on the intelligence community uh, committee in the Senate. Uh, he's somebody who can get the classified information, but he's also um, somebody we're going to be working, you know, we're going to be working hard to convince that we can, uh, that this is an appropriate tool that, you know, can be, um, that can be, uh, exercised in a way that's consistent with the Constitution and, and civil liberties. 
So on a related note, um, the report also, I think, disclosed some new numbers about um, FISA wiretaps. And um, it said that in 2021, there was um, wiretaps on 376 targets versus in 2018, more than 1,800. And so that's a pretty sizable decrease. We, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but um, what do you think sort of accounts for that large decrease? This does come after the Carter, the Inspector General report that criticized the FBI's handling of the Carter Page FISA, and then the FBI implemented a lot of a lot a lot of new processes um, in that wake. Right. Um, I don't know the precise answer to why we're seeing what I think is fairly described as a significant drop in the number of traditional FISAs, and by that I'm you know just to distinguish between traditional FISAs that, uh, versus Section 702. Um, the number of Section 702 targets has gone up uh, each each year. The the number of traditional FISA, so you know, individual probable cause applications to the FISA court, um, has gone down significantly. And I know that we have discussed uh, in, in, in with you know folks within the Justice Department and the FBI a number of different possibilities. One is the impact of COVID uh, actually on travel of people here who might be targets. Um, the overall number of counterterrorism cases, just given the counterterrorism threat that we're seeing not being at the same level it was certainly 10 years ago. Um, it, I think it also potentially is attributable to the use of Section 702 as an alternative to Title I FISA, where somebody is outside the United States who's not a U.S. person who's being targeted. Uh, and I, but I do worry that it's it could be, and I don't know this to be true, but I am concerned that it could be uh, a function of FISA being very difficult to uh, to use if you're an FBI agent. Uh, because and look, the compliance rules are are necessary and important for for me and for the team that I lead at the National Security Division. I feel like it's our job, along with the FBI lawyers, to you know, help the agents, the operators, understand the rules, because they want to know the rules, make them clear, make them simple to follow, so that we can have a very compliant program that doesn't discourage operators from using a, a tool that's been, you know, a vital one since 1978. So you saw how a lot of these wiretaps were used a decade ago, and then um, all these new processes have been implemented, and now you're coming and seeing it. Again, how different is that process from the one you knew 10 years ago now? Uh, yeah, so I was, as you said, Arun, I was in a role similar to where I am now. I oversaw the FISA program 2006 to 2008, basically. Uh, and we were really just kicking off some of the oversight processes then that are in place now. I, I think it's, I think it's uh, the, the amount of oversight has increased over time. Uh, there are additional... Uh, accuracy checks and, compl and completeness checks. Some of those came out of recommendations from the Inspector General report that, that you mentioned. Uh, you know, so some of them are newer, and that can take some time for, for folks on the operational side to get used to. I think, you know, again, I think it's our job as, as the attorneys that represent the government before the FISA court and conduct oversight of the FBI and the intelligence community to make these rules as easy and, and clear uh, to follow. But, so I think there are additional requirements. I don't, I'm not suggesting those requirements are inappropriate, but I do think that they've added a degree of complexity that um, you know, is possibly a deterrent if someone is thinking about you know, making a choice between using FISA, an intelligence tool, or maybe using a criminal tool, a search warrant under the criminal procedures, uh, and there are just advantages in uh, intelligence investigations to the use of FISA that we want people to understand and to use when it's appropriate. Are you seeing agents shy away from using it, or is this a concern that you have that you haven't quite seen manifest? I haven't really tested that proposition. I, it's more something that I'm concerned about, and it's, part of some, it, it's something I think we need to be alert to. Uh, this is part of my experience over many years. I, I had this view when I was a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor in D.C. for 12 years in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. I saw it when I was at uh, DOJ the first time. I certainly saw it at NSA as the general counsel. You know, the, 
the, the, this is just a generally true dynamic. The operators, again, whether you're an NSA analyst or a, a CIA analyst or collector or FBI agent, you know, they want to know what the rules are. They want to follow the rules. They don't want to jeopardize you know, their, uh, their, you know, their careers, their just ability to do their jobs by taking on uh, you know, projects or, t- or use tools that are so hard or so unwieldy or subject to so much scrutiny that it, it becomes murky, right? It's murky to them. It's hard for them to know how to, how to, how to navigate. So again, I think that's our job is to help them navigate these rules so that they can use these tools to their fullest extent. So if we can zoom out a little bit now, um, the session description did pose an interesting question that I want to put to you. It basically asked how the balance of cyber power has shifted among world powers over the past decade, and you were in government dealing with some of these issues 10 years ago. Um, You're coming at it now again. um, How do you think that's changed? In the middle of the Obama administration, some of the biggest cyber concerns were probably uh, economic espionage from China, things like the OPM breach, and then towards the end of um, the administration, obviously, Russian efforts to interfere in the election. But how has that, how do you think that's shifted over the past five, 10 years? That's a, you know, that's a big question. And obviously, a lot of folks here have a perspective on that. Rob Silvers, who was here at the beginning, right, has obviously got a, a great insight on that, Mika, you as well. So, you know, I sort I to tread into this question of, you know, how things have changed, a little bit from the perspective of my job in the National Security Division. When I was in the National Security Division, when we started the NSD in 2006, uh, there was no program around cyber. Uh, There was, uh, we were all about counterterrorism and al-Qaeda, right? And that was the real focus. That was really the the reason that the National Security Division was brought, uh, was created in 2006, was to support the counterterrorism fight. so, you know, fast forward to today, and the National Security Division has a whole uh, unit devoted to cyber prosecutions, and, uh, and it's one of our most active groups, and it's also one of the places a lot of people want to come work. You know, it's, got a, it's, it's really easy to recruit really smart lawyers to work in that area because it's so exciting um, and dynamic. And I guess that speaks to the nature of the threats. Like, you're right, like, you go back... Uh, a number of years to uh, the Obama administration, it's not like there weren't a lot of cyber threats, including, like you said, OPM and and others. Uh, I think what's changed is the pace of those threats, the complexity, the number of of actors in the nation-state context who are extremely capable. Um, And I should say, when it comes to the National Security Division, we sort of, and and the Department of Justice, we divide up our work on cyber between when, when it's nation-state activity, it's part of the National Security Division. When it's sort of very, when it's criminal activity, like ransomware by by hackers or criminals, uh, the criminal division right. yeah, handles it. So again, but from my vantage point, the nation-state activity, and when whether we're talking about, of course, China and Russia, but also Iran, North Korea, uh, there's a degree of, of sophistication and really pace of activity that is different in scale from what I saw uh, during the Obama administration. And that's, you know, I think that's testing all of us, whether you're at the Defense Department um, or the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security uh, or at, at Justice. So it's not so much the balance of power shifting as much as just it becoming a much more of a geopolitical issue. I think that's totally fair to say. I think it's much more of a geopolitical issue. I think as Mika and, and, and Megan... Uh, talked about last night, uh, you know, this is something that is part of what we're obviously seeing in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's the, the balance of power, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, you know, the United States and has, if anything, has really increased its ability over the past 10 years. I suppose another important factor to identify is just in, we've increased our ability to defend ourselves. Uh, in a way, and organize the government much better to be positioned to defend the United States from nation-state cyber attacks than we were 10 years ago. And I think that's part of the story as well. As much as it is about the threat, what we see with, uh, with CISA at DHS and uh, the work of the intelligence community, again, along with us at, at, at Justice, a much more cohesive and coordinated approach to defending the country from nation-state cyber attacks. 
Um, the Justice, uh, speaking of Russia, the Justice Department and the FBI in recent months have also taken a somewhat more proactive approach on the cyber front and um, shutting down that botnet um, affiliated with the with Russian military intelligence. Can you? That seems like something you wouldn't have done a couple years ago. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? And um, clearly, you're giving up some intel collection capabilities in order to shut down that botnet. Can you talk about that? how that decision came together. Sure, and it, just to, again, to step back a little bit, you know, with the, the, the National Security Division, the, we're, we're looking at all the tools that we have to address nation state cyber threats. So we still, you know, sort of bread and butter is bringing criminal cases, prosecutions of, uh, of cyber actors, actors who break US criminal laws, you know, so uh, indicting Iranian actors for using cyber-enabled uh, disinformation around the election, or going after uh, uh, you know people uh, in China associated with the with the Chinese government who carry out uh, cyber espionage. Um, now, when it comes to sort of more proactive means, the, you know what you're talking about with the recent taking down of, the, of a botnet. That's uh, something that. You know, we really just started doing last year for the first time, and we did it again recently, uh, earlier this month, where we had identified, we being the government, had identified a Russian intelligence botnet that had, uh, and, and malware um, that had uh, affected, infected thousands of computers in the United States and, in, and around the world. And we were able to use a uh, Rule 41 search warrant to... Uh, go after the command and control layer that controlled this botnet uh, and you execute searches at the smaller number, much smaller number of um, command and control, uh, basically command and control servers that were um, providing access to the botnet and controlling the botnet. And using this, yeah, this Rule 41 search warrant, which you know, is typically what you would use in any sort of search warrant in a, in a, in a common criminal case, we were able to remove the malware from uh, from these, they're basically routers that were associated with a particular company. Were able to remove the malware uh, at, from that command and control layer and effectively shut down the botnet. So very, you know, I think innovative and proactive use of a standard tool uh, to uh, to disable uh, what was potentially a significant uh, malicious uh, or could it could have been a significant malicious attack through these botnets. Um, so were you sort of giving up some intel collection mm. ability in doing that, or was that not really something I don't that think was with that we were okay. giving up uh, intelligence. I think, you know, the, on the timing, you know, we look to, like, are these, I think some of the standard considerations in any of these matters is, like, can the private sector handle this itself? Is this something that, you know, that with some guidance from, you know, a provider in the private sector, they could patch a problem? And in here, I think the conclusion was that this was a, this was a challenge that you know that we had the best tool to address. And I'm not sure that we gave up um, intelligence in taking it down. You know, that's often the case with with certain types of operations in national security matters. Sometimes it's better to to monitor the threat for a while to understand it versus to disrupt it. I I, I don't think that was the case here. In this one, yeah. Okay. Um, on the Russia front, you are, uh, you're also involved in the um, Justice Department's task force going after oligarch um, assets. Can you give us a sense at this point of what the universe of identified assets has been? Is, is most of it in Europe? Is there a substantial amount within the U.S.? What should we kind of expect to see on the horizon? Well, I do have to see if Garrett, yeah, so Garrett actually promised a yacht, I think, to <laughs> folks at dinner last night, right. if I remember. Um, but, uh, I, yeah. I, That's that, coming, right? Yeah, it's coming. That's in the mail. Um, the, uh, yeah, so we are part, the National Security Division is, is part of, the, uh, of, a, uh, of a task force at the Department of Justice called Klepto Capture Task Force, which is really designed to go after uh, sanctioned Russian oligarchs who are, you know, have significant responsibility for supporting uh, the Russian regime uh, and who uh, evade sanctions uh, that, that they face. And when we find that they have violated sanctions laws, the Justice Department, and particularly in our security division, is responsible for enforcing those sanctions because evading them is, is against the law, is a crime. 
Uh, it also enables, uh, through forfeiture laws, uh, the government to seize forfeited assets, assets that have been tied to uh, illicit transactions, basically transactions that violate sanctions. So we are working very closely with the intelligence community to, in response to your question, Aruna, like identify where are these assets are and, and how are they being moved. And it's a bit of a cat and mouse game, of course, because these are sophisticated uh, individuals who have uh, largely learned how to hide their assets or move their assets without them being seen. And so we're working very hard to identify when there are assets, again, whether they're physical assets like yachts um, or, 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 or planes or um, you know, financial assets like bank accounts that are, being, uh, that are touching the U.S. system in a way that makes any sort of transaction involving them a violation of the sanctions that right. they're under. And when we do that, you know, it's a concerted effort by folks from the criminal division who do um, uh, money laundering and asset forfeiture work in the National Security Division where we do uh, sanctions enforcement along with uh, the intelligence community to really, you know, I think really important work, which is to identify how uh, these oligarchs have... Through largely through illicit means, been able to support the the Russian regime and continue to do so, and to with the goal of furthering our efforts to isolate Russia economically to impose costs for the invasion of Ukraine. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Right, this is sort of a longer-term play, but um, uh, some of these oligarchs have come out and said, oh, we're not, I, we don't have that much to do with the Kremlin, we can't sort of change Putin's mind. Have you seen any evidence yet to suggest this is a strategy that will have paid dividends ultimately? So it's a really important question. I, I don't have an answer t for you, Aruna, today. I, I think, to, to me, it stands to reason um, that pressuring these individuals who have been propping up the regime by, by, by seizing uh, their uh, you know, ill-gotten gains can only... Uh, further pressure as part of a broader U.S. and global effort, really, because this isn't just the United States, right? This is uh, a number of our allies and partners around the world uh, can only serve to further put pressure on, on Putin and to impose, you know, appropriately impose costs. So we'll, I think it may be too early to tell, and, and it, but to me it's a very, you know, for our role, you know, at the National Security Division and the Justice Department, this is what we can do. I, I attend meetings where there's representatives of the State Department and, of course, the Defense Department. So there are a lot of other efforts going on, whether it's militarily or diplomatically, to <clears throat> support and, and this, this effort in ways that are more concrete, perhaps, or more near-term, uh, like supplying weapons, right? But, you know, what we're doing is what we can as, as part of this broader effort. So I think we wanted to open it up for questions. So I, uh, I know the big news today is the number of uh, 702 searches of U.S. person data, but I actually want to focus on the decline of Title I FISAs. Uh, and um, I, it, it seems to me there's a, uh, another, or related to your incentive structure explanation, uh, uh, there's a there's a degree of bureaucratization that has happened in the FISA process over the last few years that's sort of worthy of some attention too. You know, you guys oversee uh, the preparation of FISAs. The court oversee. You know, there's layers and layers of review within the Justice Department. Then you have the court review, and then you have this kind of omnipresent fear of uh, a congressional committee deciding to. Uh, uh, spend months and months or years and years retroactively uh, second-guessing the FISA application. And I, I just wonder whether we've created an environment in which uh, you'd kind of have to be crazy to be an FBI agent and want to uh, use this particular tool uh, you end up with an IG investigation that go on, goes on for years, and when that's not good enough, you get a criminal investigation. Uh, isn't the decline of FISA Title I the absolutely logical consequence of the political environment of the last five years? Well, I, I talked a little bit about this in, in response to your question, Aruna. Ben, I, I, 
I am concerned about the dynamic that you describe. I don't know that to be the factually true. I, I think there is reason to be concerned that we have an environment where we have discouraged and deterred agents from making full use of this tool. I will say that if you'd have asked me 10 years ago when I was at the Justice Department overseeing the FISA program, if in 2022 FISA would would be this acronym that, that members of Congress and American people all were so familiar with and, and had become as politicized as I believe it did become, uh, I would have been surprised. I would have been shocked. It was, it's a, it, because the, it's really kind of a quiet corner of the work of the U.S. government and the, and the FBI with this court meets in you know, classified session. It has become a very, uh, a bit of a lightning rod. And, I, and I, so I think that's part of the concern that I think you identify. You know, I think if you step back and think about, um, many of you know about the FISA wall that, that existed pre-9-11. And, and these were, this was a rule that sort of prevented intelligence uh, agents and, law, and criminal agents from talking about cases. And, and it, was, it was, you know, it put in place for reasons that were laudable, you know, to really make sure that there was no effort to do an end run around the Fourth Amendment and so they had created some rules to restrict how the FBI could conduct its business in national security cases. Then you had 9-11. And one of the biggest criticisms from Congress and from the 9-11 Commission and from observers was you had built this edifice that was unnecessary and really prevented the government from being as effective as it could be. And you sort of had this swing back, you know, in terms of the pendulum that is constantly in motion uh, that tries to balance these two, you know, tries to balance security and liberty, of course. But um, so I, I sort of, I, I use that example to suggest that this is a dynamic process, you know, between building up compliance structures and oversight and making tools available and easier to use. And so we haven't heard the end of this I, and that we could be looking at a time when folks look harder at the, the compliance regime and say, we've maybe gone too far or maybe we can make it easier, maybe we can just simplify it to um, incentivize, to use your word, the use of the tool. So I guess stay tuned. You know, it's part of the process. It's not a static uh, moment that will stay like this. I think there'll be continued changes. So I just wanted to put a finer point on some of the stuff you said to make sure about these numbers and make sure I understood. The first was, did you say whether it was a Russia cyber threat from a government or a criminal, a cyber criminal group? I didn't. Okay. You sure you, would you like to? No. No. <laughs> uh, was you. the number a surprise? Um, well, um, the, you know, no, because we were tracking it, right? So it wasn't a surprise to the folks who were tracking it. I think... Was it a surprise to you? When we briefed it, you know, I think people who hadn't heard that number, it was a significant increase because the, the year before was two million fewer. So, you know, yes, I mean, I think that's fairly, uh, that level of increase, I think, you know, people are, you know, they, they want to know why, you know? Okay. Why, why did that number go almost, why did that number more than double? And then another tiny one. Yeah. Which is, um, do you expect to declassify this particular case as you make your case on, on the Hill for 702? You know, I, Dean, I think that it will be part of the ongoing conversation as people ask questions and we want to get to the bottom of this, what more we can say. I think we've said quite a bit in a way. We've said, you know, maybe in talking about it being a Russia cyber uh, threat that was being, that, that, in, that saying some, you know, it won't, it won't necessarily uh, address the concerns of everybody. So I think we'll be looking at what more we can say. Do you think DOJ on the sort of, well, the government has enough or adequate authority to deal with the emerging cyber, the ongoing non-emerging cyber risks that we have? Like, is R702 and Rule 41 and Title I sufficient to deal with um, what we're combating? I, I think, no, I think that we're going to continue to want to look at what other tools um, are available. I mean, you know, just stepping back a bit, like Rule 41 search warrant, you know, the, uh, the, the rules of criminal procedure wasn't designed for the digital age, right? It, 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 it works, but it's, you know, being able to seize the instrumentalities of a crime in, in a physical context means you go in, you know, you have a, a bank robber who is a suspect and you go in and you find 
the lock pick, you know, and you take it because you can seize it in the search warrant because it's an instrumentality of a crime. And that's how we talk about Rule 41 in the cyber context, seizing malware as an instrumentality of a crime. It's a, so it doesn't really just net roll off the tongue, I think, in a way. So like, I think we need to always be looking at, are these tools up to the, up to the task? Uh, so far, you know, we've been able to be effective. I think the other place to look, of course, is uh, you know, the sort of constant uh, review on cybersecurity and, and breach notification and sharing of cyber information between the government and, and the private sector. Like those, those are areas, too, that it will be really helpful to continue to, to build on the existing authorities. So, you know, I think it's probably this group, again, a super informed group, like one of the just the facts of, of national security law and policy is that it lags behind technology. And that's always a challenge. Uh, that's a challenge, that was a challenge in 2008 when Jamil Jaffer and I worked on modernizing FISA. You too, Megan, we all worked on that together. Um, and we had to explain like why FISA, which had been in, adopted in 1978 based on 1978 technology, uh, had, was not up to the task anymore because we, people weren't communicating anymore the way they did. It, it was adopted before the internet. And so, um, that's why, in answer to your question, it's really important to just observe that it's always going to be true that our laws are going to lag behind technology. And the technology, whether that's technology that enables surveillance or technology that, is, that empowers our adversaries, and in particularly on that latter side, you know, the technology that enables our adversaries uh, is moving very quickly. And so uh, it's not easy Again, sort of going back to your question, Dina, like to have enough information out there to justify to Congress and the American people uh, that we need more authorities uh, to meet that you know, fast evolving threat. So that's just a real you know, big picture challenge that I think we all share, you know, all of us who work, uh, whether we're in government or the private sector or, or in, uh, in uh, civil society groups, you know, we all share that challenge. Recently, you announced a change in the China Initiative. And for universities and foreign scholars, as you know, this is like a hot button issue in the academy. I'm actually attending a conference next week that that's a major part of the issue. So could you kind of elaborate what you see as what that change was? And that B, the department had some failed prosecutions of certain professors, which was a little bit awkward for the department and what it meant for the universities. And what you think the new initiatives are gonna stop that from happening or be more of a check? And is it gonna be more controlled by headquarters and less out to the field to make independent issues and judgments about what a solid case is? Could you, I think a lot of people in the university environment would love to hear you talk about that. Sure, uh, Harvey, thanks. And I, I know you and I have spoken about this in the past as well. Um, so to take a step back for folks, so the, in 2018, the Department of Justice uh, adopted what it called the China Initiative, which um, was really about uh, trying to uh, shine a light on the different ways that the Chinese government was carrying out national security threats against the United States. And it collected under the rubric of the China Initiative a number of different types of cases. Uh, those cases included standard espionage or economic espionage or theft of trade secrets. Um, and it also included the cases that you're talking about, Harvey, were involving uh, uh, accusations of fraud against researchers and professors for failing to disclose their uh, affiliations with Chinese universities and institutions when they applied for federal grant funding from, for example, the Department of Energy or from NASA. Um, so fast forward to uh, when I came into my job in, at the end of last year, uh, that, that initiative had garnered a, a, a great uh, amount of criticism. Um, and one of the reasons it was so criticized was that having, just having an initiative in the Justice Department called the China Initiative uh, uh, had created uh, the perception that the Justice Department had a different standard for people who were of Chinese descent or, or Chinese Americans. And, you know, I spent a lot of time when I first got in, into this job at the end of last year talking to Asian American groups, um, uh, members of Congress, 
certainly the FBI and the CIA to understand the threat, um, as well as to academic organizations. And this was pretty consistently this concern. And um, it was one that I think, you know, I took very seriously I, and, and others at the Department of Justice and leadership roles took very seriously as well. It is a, it is a serious problem when, in fact, the, 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 the communities in the United States, the Asian American community, the Pacific Islander community, those communities that we are trying to protect are telling us that they are feeling like we are, that this is profiling, for example, was one of the criticisms. Um, now, having said that, uh, the threat from China is unabated. Uh, it is, there, the DNI has said it is the preeminent threat when it comes to the use of cyber to carry out economic espionage, uh, and we are relentlessly focused on that threat, uh, and we remain so. At the same time, I did think it was the right thing to do to stop the China initiative to adopt a broader approach that looked at all the nation states that pose a threat to us. Again, China, Russia, it kind of goes without saying, uh, North Korea, Iran, others uh, who pose a threat. And so I adopted a broader approach than simply having the China initiative. And then on the, your question, Harvey, on cases involving academic integrity or grant fraud, uh, we are taking a, we are doing, uh, we're taking a very hard look at those cases as they come in. Uh, to make sure that we have very strong evidence that these were material misrepresentations um, and that there's a linkage to national security uh, before we bring those cases. And um, look, where we have those elements, we're going to continue to bring those cases. But at the same time, I'm very aware, and I heard this very clearly from the academic community, that one of our strengths as a country is that we are able to attract and recruit the best and the brightest people from around the world who want to come and study and research and teach at our academic, academic institutions. And to the extent that, and I heard this, that these cases and the China Initiative generally uh, had, had sort of a chilling effect on that desire of people to want to come here um, and conduct basic research, fundamental research, that, that also was against our national security interests. So I think it's a, I think we did the right thing. Um, I think we will continue to be very focused on China. One of the areas that I'm really focused on is uh, what we call transnational repression. We did a press conference a few weeks ago announcing three cases out of Brooklyn, uh, all involving uh, PR, members of the PRC government who were uh, working to uh, harass, intimidate, uh, stalk uh, dissidents in the United States, including an individual, for example, who was running for Congress in New York who had been a dissident and a protester at Tiananmen Square in 1989, and including somebody who has come out and talked about it here in the Bay Area, whose daughter was an, an Olympic um, figure skater. So th these are the places we need to focus. We need to focus on where China is really carrying out threats that, that directly impact our national security, uh, and we'll continue to do that. I want to follow up on what Harvey said, because I think this is really important. In a nation that believes in freedom of association, can you be clearer when you are articulating what it means for people to have connection to a place that is their ethnic heritage and what the difference is between that association and national security threat? Because in the absence of the clear articulation of what is a national security threat about that association, and other types of maintaining of family connections, cultural heritage, all those things. The consequences for Asian Americans trying to work in national security is a persistent threat to our ability to continue to work in this space when people say that the mere association of family is disqualifying. And it would be helpful for the Department of Justice when they talk about the national security threat and in the types of cases that Harvey has, is very clear about what is and is not an, a national security threat when it comes to individualized suspicion here and draws those distinctions. Because one of the strengths of America is that we maintain our heritage to the places where we are from and that we don't have to be embarrassed about them or hide them as we work in national security. So I guess I would just ask you, as we think about that, not just changing the work and the initiative, but being clearer for people who work in this space about what is and is not a national security threat. Notwithstanding that in my official capacity, I spend a lot of time working on China as the pacing threat. There is a difference between how that is overseas and how that is experienced for those of us here in the United States. So I just ask you to think about that. Yeah, Mika, thank you very much for that. Um, 
I mean, I, th I think you articulated the point perfectly. Uh, it is so important how we talk about the threats we face because of the danger that, uh, that people are sort of swept into uh, the way we speak about it. And so, and it's crucial for all of us, but I feel, you know, as, as a Justice Department official, particularly crucial when we talk about bringing the full force of the U.S. criminal justice system to bear on an individual, that we are very clear about why we are doing that, and that it's because they broke the law, um, and, and that, you know, it's not about their ethnicity, it's not about what country they're from, um, it is, uh, you know, it's, and I heard this from, uh, from groups that I spoke with, that that was the impression that we had created. And it was partly because we weren't careful in saying, when we talk about the threat from China, we are talking about the PRC government, um, the Chinese Communist Party. We are not talking about people of Chinese descent, Chinese heritage, and certainly not um, Chinese Americans. I, we gotta keep saying it. Saying it once, twice, we gotta keep saying it. We got, and, and then we have to say it and prove it in the cases we bring and how we talk about those cases. So uh, your message is heard loud and clear. Uh, coming back to Ukraine, uh, we're about you know two, three months now into a tit-for-tat escalation, both in the U.S. and overseas, of uh, intelligence officer expulsions, sanctions, um, et cetera, et cetera, between the Russia and the West. And I wonder if you could talk to the Russian counterintelligence threat that you are seeing inside the United States right now, how that has changed over the last two or three, you know, four months as, as we are in this new era, um, and what you think the ongoing intelligence footprint of, the, uh, of Russia is inside the United States. Right, obviously, I, I mean, so great question, um, and one that folks are focused on within the intelligence community, and particularly the FBI, which has the lead for counterintelligence in the United States, uh, laser-focused on what the counterintelligence threat looks like, in particular from Russia right now. I will, you know, I read what the Attorney General said the other day in his testimony that we are, uh, in the United States, he, called, he said we are bracing for a uh, potential cyber attack from Russia. That's one, you know, that's one of the ways that uh, Russia's response will, will is, is potentially likely to manifest in the United States. I can tell you, for example, that we just, I think it was earlier this month, uh, in the Justice Department and in, in, in my uh, division, unsealed two indictments, uh, indictments that had been returned, you know, filed basically earlier uh, or middle of last year um, that were under seal. And we unsealed those two indictments, both involving, I think, charging a total of four uh, uh, Russian government officials, intelligence officials, uh, in two separate campaigns to target uh, U.S. Uh, and global infrastructure, uh, particularly in the energy sector, with cyber attacks. Um, and we, we, we spell out in those indictments how they did this. Uh, and we made the decision to uh, unseal those indictments, uh, even though they related to conduct that had occurred, I think, between 2012 and 2018, so historical conduct, but we made the decision to make those indictments public because we wanted to shine a light on what Russia's ambitions are, what their capabilities are when it comes to cyber, and also to uh, help make the point uh, for the private sector about the challenges that we all face when it comes particularly to U.S. critical infrastructure and Russian cyber attacks and what we might look and we might see in terms of retaliatory steps by Russia in the, in the context of the, of the conflict in Ukraine. So, um, so look, I mean, Russian uh, intelligence activities in the United States are nothing new. You can go back to the Russian illegals case from uh, over a decade ago that many of you know about, you know, an extraordinary case where Russia had placed operatives in the United States long-term under deep cover to build the capacity to, to collect intelligence. Uh, and, and this is a long-term game, uh, a long-term challenge. But, you know, one of the things we can do is like what I just talked about, which is to, uh, when appropriate, and we have charges, is to bring those cases to light and to focus, uh, to focus people's attention and to expose the types of activities that Russia is engaging in that break our laws uh, or that 
pose threats to us from, a, from an intelligence standpoint. On that question, there was a, a dozen Russian diplomats affiliated with the UN that were recently asked to leave. Can you elaborate on what kind of activity they were Are you allowed in? to ask another question, Ruben? I thought we were <laughs> your questions. <laughs> yes. I take that as a no comment. <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, that, 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 you talk about, uh, you know, uh, tit-for-tat sort of activity, like the, the uh, persona non grata, the sort of telling Rush, uh, intelligence officials to leave, that's kind of part of this, you know, and I, I, I can't speak specifically to the, the, what you're talking about, but that is obviously part of the, the context is how many, you know, monitoring the number of declared intelligence officers in the United States, same, they did the same thing to us, and um, you know, we want to, we want to, uh, we, there's a lot of effort to, to maintain our ability to understand the nature of that threat. And that maybe actually goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier and Ben's question about using FISA, you know, that there are tools to understand the threat are just critically important. And we just, you know, we need to op use those tools in a way that builds trust and confidence with the American people and with Congress so that we can continue to use them and we can modify them and build on them when necessary. In this uh, three million plus US persons, were they humans or companies? So I, I'm not gonna answer specifically. They could be any number of different identifiers. They could, they, they could be, uh, uh, when we talk about identify, when we talk about queries use, that may return information about U.S. persons, it could be a phone number, it could be an email address, it could be a an IP address, it could be you know specific information that you would think, okay, if I'm trying to find clues about a cyber attack, what should I, what what kind of specific information do I have from what I know that I can use as a search term in this body of foreign intelligence data that I've lawfully collected under Section 702. Um, and if any of that information might return, uh, any of those searches might return information about a U.S. person, it's counted among that, that, that three million. And, and in the cyber context, the, the 1.9 I talked about that involved the Russia cyber threat. So it's a really good question, Jamil. I mean, and it's why it's a very imprecise number. It could be even duplicates. And if, 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 a, if a query is run once a, a day or once a week, um, you know, that will, that will be counted multiple times, the same query. So these are not unique queries. They could be duplicates. They could be ones that are run uh, routinely and, and over a period of time. So this is why, you know, I think Senator Wyden's got a fair point, right? He's like, well, is it, how meaningful is this number? Right now, I, I think the answer to that, this is the best we can do. I think um, we're trying to be, be transparent where we can be, but there, there's imprecision for sure uh, in describing this and limitations about how much detail we can get into. And that, that definitely complicates the problem. But yeah, it's not just like a, it's not the name, only the name, for example, um, uh, or the, of a person or a company, although it could be. To close out, I'll just ask you about something we haven't talked about, January 6th. Um, we are uh, expected to have hearings in Congress uh, coming up. You, Justice Department has obviously brought hundreds of cases, um, still continuing in, to investigate at this point. Can you give us a sense of how much of the picture you think we have filled in about what happened that day and what happened in the lead up to that day? 70%, 80%, 40%, is there any kind of ballpark you could give us for sort of how, how long you expect this to go? It's very hard to put a you know, percentage on it, Aruna. It's a, I think we're still in, you know, in the middle of, at least when it comes to the criminal investigation. Um, over more than 700 people have been right. charged, more than 300 of those with felonies. Um, you've seen recently some more complex cases being brought involving uh, conspiracies. The Oath Keeper group charged with seditious conspiracy. Uh, a number of uh, people involved in the group called the Proud Boys charged with uh, an obstruction conspiracy. Um, and these are complex cases. I think the U.S. Attorney's Office, and we're partners with them in the National Security Division. We, we have uh, both, you know, work on those cases directly and have oversight over them, um, along with basically every U.S. Attorney's Office and FBI, every FBI office in the country has contributed to this investigation. It's massive um, in scale. So I think they've moved 
incredibly fast. And uh, even though I understand from a public perception standpoint, it may not feel completely satisfying because that story is not coming out in a, in a complete narrative at, at one time. It's coming out in pieces as this information is collected. But at least with the criminal case, we're starting to see, or cases, a number of cases, a few cases have gone to trial in, in individual cases. So you're starting to see um, these cases run their course to completion. The conspiracy cases will get some trial dates coming up later this year. Those will fill in the picture. Now, the other piece, of course, is the, the January 6th committee, which will also, as you said, hold hearings. That will be a, another way in which the American people will have a better sense of what happened. Look, I think it's it's a, it's a top priority for us in, in the Justice Department, for the Attorney General, for me in the National Security Division. Uh, the FBI has been investigating this case as, a, as an act of domestic terrorism. We've started a domestic terrorism unit in the Justice Department. There's an elevated threat around domestic terrorism. It's a, it's a significant problem in this country. We need to take it very seriously. What we saw happen on January 6th was absolutely unacceptable, and we need to hold people accountable. I think we are out of time, so we'll leave it at that. Thank you. All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you, everyone. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.